Today we're going to finish up our, uh, our study on the life of Saul, which we started three weeks ago. Um, you'll recall that during that first week, uh, I kind of set the stage and talked a little bit about the, the political um, and uh, religious background of Saul's entry onto the stage as the first king uh, of Israel. And we talked about how it was a very turbulent time, how uh, the children of Israel had just emerged from the period of the judges uh, when uh, things were sort of spiraling out of control and the experiment that was the nation of Israel was kind of fraying at the edges. You had this succession of of judges who started out pretty good um, and then as the the book of Judges goes on, the, the situation just spirals downward and downward and downward until the whole thing seems like it might just fall apart uh, with intertribe warfare and uh, worship of other gods and compromise with the cultures around them. Uh, and it, it Judges is really about the, the Israelites becoming the Canaanites. And, and that's the stage uh, onto which Samuel, who's the last judge and a, and a great prophet, steps. And, and he's probably the most significant figure uh, in, uh, in, up to that point in Israelite history other than Moses, right, and Abraham. So since Moses, he's probably the most significant figure and he comes onto the stage and he judges Israel for a long time. Uh, and the people approach him and they say, uh, hey, your sons uh, who you've kind of designated as, as replacement judges for you are, are kind of chumps uh, and we're going to be attacked by the Ammonites, and we want a king that's like all the other kings around us. Uh, and uh, the, the path that God leads Samuel on uh, results in him anointing and then crowning Saul king. Uh, and we've talked in the second week about how Saul, to a careful reader, um, Saul would recall the period of judges. He's like, the period of judges made flesh in the sense that he, he comes from the place uh, where the book of Judges ends. Like it, it ends in all this dissolution and anger and, and uh, all this trouble in Gibeah. And right you know, in the middle of, Ju- of 1 Samuel, we get this indication that this new king who's being selected, it, there's a line drawn from him to the period of Judges uh, and then we, last week, we got deeper into that idea and I showed you how there are uh, all of these connections between things that happen in Judges and things that happen in Saul's life. So that, again, a careful reader would say, this guy's not any better than the Judges were and in some ways he's worse. He doesn't even, he doesn't even fulfill the things that they fulfill. Um, this week, uh, I want to, since it's our last week with this material, uh, I, I, I would be super remiss if I did not uh, make the final connection to the future after Saul, because uh, you can't talk about Saul without talking about David. Uh, and I started out this, this series by talking probably for five or, ten, five or 10 minutes, and I just listed things that Saul did poorly. Uh, and then I listed the things that David did poorly. Um, and looked at in a certain light or taken from a certain perspective, the things that David did from, from our view are much worse, right? We, we don't have an indication that Saul anywhere uh, like just straight up murders a person or steals anybody's wife or, right, he, he doesn't do all the kind of things where we go, oh, that's, that, 
that seems like really morally egregious behavior. And David does, right? And yet David is called a man after God's own heart. And it may make you wonder as a reader, right? Because you're, you're, you're supposed to be asking questions of the text. It may make you wonder, well, what, uh, what's the difference between these two men? What makes David, who's uh, a mercenary in the beginning and uh, a... Um, it seems to betray his country and his family is falling apart at the edges because he's passive and won't do anything about it. Um, he's an adulterer and a, a, a murderer, possibly a rapist. What, from our perspective, what, what makes him better than Saul? Uh, and tonight I'm going to try to answer that question because I, I think the text provides it if we look at it. Um, and it also, uh, in doing that, we, we can understand uh, which example we should emulate in terms of, because uh, what I'm going to say is that this is a, uh, it's about their viewpoint on God. It's about, it's about their viewpoint on their relationship and man's proper relationship with God that makes the difference. It's not their behavior. Uh, it's, it's their attitude uh, about uh, whether God will provide and who gets to make the rules. So with that, let's go ahead and turn. This is uh, sort of uh, Saul's last, uh, last hurrah in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So Samuel uh, also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now this is what the, the, not following this kind of instruction is what they got in trouble for in Judges, right? They, They didn't complete this kind of instruction and they ended up living side by side. Uh, with these people groups that were around them. And when they lived side by side with these people groups, they became these people groups, right? Again, the Israelites became the Canaanites. So let's continue. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, and get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword." There's the first problem, right? He wasn't told to preserve the king of the, the Amalekites. He was told to kill all of them. Um, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So they, they kept the best portions for themselves uh, and then they they got rid of all the garbage, right? They, they said, okay, we'll destroy this stuff, but this other stuff is good. We don't want to waste it. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. Uh, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. 
So we're going to skip forward, um, and I will tell you, uh, or let's go to, actually, let's read just the next few verses, I'm sorry. Number 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did it, he said. I did everything you told me. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them, they, right? Remember the, the Garden of Eden story? The, the woman that you gave me gave me the fruit to eat. This is exactly the same thing, right? Um, he says, they, amorphous, somebody, somebody preserved uh, uh, these from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, stay, and I will tell thee uh, what the Lord has said to me this night. Uh, and he goes on and he t- tells him, obedience is better than sacrifice. Right? That, this is where that verse is. Um, and he says, you're, you're not going to be king anymore. Right? And, and, and he announces God's judgment. Um, I want you to keep in your mind Saul's reaction to that That. Uh, when, when Samuel comes to him and says, did you do what the Lord said? Or, you know, and, and I want you to keep that in your mind because we're going to contrast it with David. So let's go to 1 Samuel 24, uh, 1 through 7, just a maybe quarter inch over. Um, so what's happened in the meantime? Well, a lot. Um, David, uh, the, the, the Israelites have gone to war with the, the Philistines uh, they were always at war with somebody, uh, and the Philistines were a popular candidate. Uh, and the Philistines looked about to crush them uh, until a little shepherd boy named David slew Goliath, their champion. Uh, and uh, in the right before that, uh, if we had read it, you would you would you would know that Samuel uh, was called upon by the Lord to go anoint David as king of Israel. So he's done that. David is a king in waiting now. He knows it, Samuel knows it, others know it, but nobody else knows it. Uh, And then uh, he slays Goliath and Saul grows jealous of David. And so we have David um, being pursued, right? And he he begins to pursue him and try to kill him. And so we have David running away from Saul for the last half of 1 Samuel. Um, Interesting thing here in terms of the structure of these books. So first and second Samuel are really one book. Uh, when they were written, not all of that text could fit on one scroll, so they're divided, right? It's first, second, first Samuel and second Samuel are really just the book of Samuel. Uh, and if you read that book, it really is structured, so the first eight chapters are the life of uh, Samuel right? And then you have the rest of 1 Samuel is the life of Saul, right? And Saul, right, he has a a rising pattern where he becomes king of Israel and does some heroic stuff and then a tragic fall. And at the same time, you have David, right? And David is rising. uh, And that's kind of where we leave him in in the book of 1 Samuel. And then 2 Samuel is about his rise, and then his eventual fall. And then at the end, there's a coda or an ending that talks about where David and Saul fit into history uh, or you know, where they fit into God's plan. Um, so it's, it, it's artfully created, right? It's, it's made to, to, so you can create these associations in your mind, these connections, and think about uh, the message 
that the author is conveying. So let, let's go to 24, uh, 1 through 7. So, so David's on the run, and it, and it says, And it came to pass, uh, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Anybody know what uh, cover your feet means? You're going to go potty. Uh, So he went in the cave to go use the bathroom. Uh, It's a euphemism for for, uh, going to the bathroom. Uh, and the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord's... So David's hiding in this cave, and Saul comes in to do his business. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him uh, as it shall seem good to thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterwards that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. So we have here David, right? He is in a position where he's been anointed as the king of Israel. He knows he's going to be king one day. Uh, Samuel came to his home and told him that and poured the oil over his head and anointed him. He's uncrowned, but he's a king in waiting. He has a chance to make, right? He had to have been thinking because he's human. This, this is the time, right? This is the time for me to do what is necessary to, to, to create the conditions that God said would happen so that I can be king. This is it. But he didn't. God didn't tell him to murder Saul, ever. He said, you're going to be king one day. And so David has this, um, he does it twice, and we'll read the, 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 the other account of it. But he, he, he says, it's not for me to do this. If God wants this to happen, it will, and he does, then it will happen. Right? It's a posture of trust. Whereas when you go back to Saul, right, Saul's continual pattern throughout his life, throughout his early, um, throughout the, the chapters that we read last time, it was, God's not doing this for me, so I'm going to go ahead and make it happen, right? I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm told to wait for Samuel to come and perform the sacrifice. Tick-tock, Samuel, you're not here. So he goes and does the sacrifice himself, right? It's, it's a posture of distrust of the Lord. It's a posture of saying, I, I want this relationship to be on my terms. It ought, to, it ought to unfold the way I want it to unfold. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 26. This is almost a repeat of, of the, last, uh, the last thing that happened. Uh, and the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hachilah? which is before Jeshimon. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakimon, which is before, uh, or Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. 
David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner the son of Net, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then Abishai said to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the, with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite, and I will not smite him the second time, because he'll be dead the first. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. So they took it, right, as a, as a sign to Saul, we were here, we could have killed you, but we didn't, right? Because God forbid that we should harm the Lord's anointed. That's not our job. It's, it's God's job to handle this however he likes, right? Again, it's a posture of trust. It's a recognition that the Lord is in control. There, uh, so there are several psalms that are about this very thing, uh, this, this period in David's life. I'm just gonna read one to you because it... it um, one, it was, it's said to have been written at around this time, uh, but also, um, I think it, um, uh, I think that it reflects a, that kind of posture of trust that I'm talking about. Uh, why boastest thou in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs, like a, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness, Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place, and root thee out of the land of the living, Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made, God, that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. Um, just well, one, of many, uh, one of many psalms that were written during this time in, in David's life. And it expresses this profound trust that God, God has said something's going to happen. And it is. Right? There's none of this. Uh, God helps those who help themselves sort of mentality. And that's what makes David so special, is that this idea, I, I'm not going to make this happen. God promised. God is faithful. I trust his word. Um, and then I, I, the other thing that, that really stands out to me as I look at the contrast between these two people, and I've, I've already alluded to it a little bit, but I, I want to hit on it um, by reading probably the, the most shameful uh, the most shameful passage uh, of all of David's life. Um, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
And you're all going to be pretty familiar with this story, I think. Right? David's uh, become a king. Right? He, he's uh, built up Jerusalem uh, and is uh, thinking about the future. Right? He's, he's uh, eventually going to promise to build the temple. Uh, and God will say, you don't have to build me a house. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make your house into the, the vehicle that will... Um, that will bring about the, deliver, the redemption of all mankind. Uh, so this, this profound thing is going to happen to him soon. Uh, and right in the midst of that, we get this in chapter 11. Uh, and it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Uh, and David sent to Joab, and I won't read the rest of the story, but he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Um, so Uriah comes back from the front lines, right? Because David summoned him. And David tries this ruse to, uh, to get Uriah to, to spend time with Bathsheba so that uh, Uriah will believe that the child that, that David and, and Bathsheba have conceived together is Uriah's, right? He's trying to hide what he's done. Uh, when that doesn't work because Uriah is faithful, uh, he instead, um, he sends him back to the front lines and he orders Joab to throw him uh, where the action is hottest uh, so that he'll be killed. Uh, and there's no way to send just one man. You have to send all of them. Uh, so he does that, uh, and it, it, it constitutes an act of murder. Right? David, not just, uh, he doesn't just kill Uriah, he kills all the men who are with him as they attack the gates uh, of Rabbah. And so uh, you have this situation where David has done this really, our, our protagonist, right, our hero, has done this really awful thing. Uh, and if you're, uh, again, a careful reader, as we all are, uh, and you're reading through your Bible, and you're, you're likely to say, well, this guy's worse than the last one, right? He's, he's into all kinds of bad stuff. Uh, why, why, is, why is he better than Saul? Uh, and in fact, the, te the text asks that question. Uh, let's go to chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan's a new prophet, uh, unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. Uh, and there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the lamb that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall surely die. 
Oops. Right? Uh, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And David said, and Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, uh, hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and, hast, and hast, t- hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, uh, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Uh, and David said to Nathan, now this is the important part, right? Remember Saul's reaction when confronted with his sin? What did he say? He's like, well, the, the people, they, they, he said they, right? They did it, right? It's, it's like on the news when they say, um, sources say, or some say, right? That means it's probably not true, right? Because it, really. Um, so he's like, they, they did it, right? They, they, they took the animals and kept them, right? They, to- they didn't do it, uh, what you said. But I did. Uh, and then when Samuel confronts him, his response is, uh, well, you know, um, actually, we were going to sacrifice them to the Lord. Uh, we, right? So, so it, it changes from, well, they did it, and I, really, I couldn't really do anything about it, to, well, we decided to do it for a good reason. Right? It, there's this, this unwillingness to recognize that God gets to set the rules. Right? And, and that you don't, get to, you don't get to talk around them. You don't get to uh, say, you know what, God? You had, your idea was okay, but mine's better. So why don't we do it my way? You don't get to do that. David's reaction, uh, verse 13. And, da- and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And we won't go on from there, but notice the the real contrast, right? David confronted with his sin. Um, C.S. Lewis said uh, that... Uh, being in sin is like being asleep because when you're asleep you can't describe waking only when you're awake can you look at sleep and say oh I was asleep or that this is what sleep is by the same token the further into the further into sin you are the less you're able to see it the less you're able to conceptualize it and climb your way out Right. David had to, he had to have that story, right, about the, the, 
the guy and the ewe lamb and, and it being stolen in order to have like cold water splashed on his face. Right? He, in order for it to connect with him. But when it did, right, his recognition was, I, I sinned. I sinned against the Lord. I didn't sin against, he, he doesn't say, I, I sinned against Uriah, although he surely did. Right? He recognizes this is an offense against the one I worship, against the God who has set me to be the king of Israel. Um, that's the difference between these two men. It's what, makes, well, it's what makes it so that Christ comes from the house of David and not the house of Saul. Right? There's nothing, Saul didn't have to fail. Right? But by predilection, by, by his own unwillingness to confront his sin, right, to say, yep, I did it wrong. I did it wrong. Uh, I don't get to set the rules. I don't get to say what this relationship is like. You do, God. Uh, he, he failed of his promise. That's really the lesson of his life is, uh, and kind of the application point for us, uh, you, you shouldn't put God in a box and say that this is the relationship we'll have. If you read this book and apprehend it, right, like comprehend what it says, It'll have some uncomfortable truths for you, right? It, it will confront you with your own sin, with the things that you do that limit your ability to walk with God. And you will say to yourself, uh, internally or externally, you will say to yourself, do, do I get to set the rules or does God? Right? And, and most of us, right, will say, I, I'd really like to set the rules, I can think of a, a thousand times a day I do that, right? Where I'm confronted with the ability to act on God's behalf in a way that is, is scripturally sound and in, that executes his commands in this Bible, right? That spreads his love into the world in a real and powerful way. And I say, that sounds hard. It sounds difficult. It sounds like it's not what I want to do. Uh, don't be a Saul, right? It, it's not about being perfect. It's not ultimately about moral behavior, although moral behavior will always result. Um, it's, it's about having that mindset and that, that attitude towards God that says, I trust in you and you set the rules.